Hi, this is Daniel James, and this is the podcast of Triple R's The Mission, a weekly radio show exploring the issues that impact the lives of Aboriginal people and those at the wrong end of social justice in this country. The Mission is broadcast live on Triple R each Tuesday evening. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. Good evening. Welcome to episode 00061 of The Mission. My name is Daniel James, broadcasting to you once again from Radio City Docklands, where I am on Wurundjeri country. And it's very important that uh, the Wurundjeri people, the Kulin Nations, are recognised for never ceding this place in the first instance. So this will always be and always was Aboriginal land. So here we are again. 233 new cases since hotspots were identified last week. When we spoke last, we were seeing, we we're beginning to see a second spike in COVID cases in suburbs. Very precious to the Triple R audience, no doubt. No doubt home to some of you who are listening at the moment. And of course, these are very trying times and deserve has got nothing to do with it. And we would be kidding ourselves if we were to pretend that there is nothing other than a real blow about the announcements that the Premier made today about a lockdown. So my sympathies are with all of those of you living in the 10 postcode, the 36 suburbs, that will return to stage three restrictions as of 11.59 uh, tomorrow night for four weeks. And I'm sure we can all remember the four reasons and uh, the four reasons only why people should leave their home. And unfortunately, it's a very painful but a, a necessary step. There will be a lot of mob actually affected by this, and, but I'm very confident that uh, people in the Aboriginal community and people in Aboriginal families in these areas will do the right thing, as we have done ever since this pandemic reached our shores. So you should know that uh, this station will continue to be here for you in isolation and also means those of us who aren't in hotspots have to continue to do the right things. Good hand hygiene, don't touch your face, retain social distancing whenever you're outside, retain social distancing when you're inside your home and there are people over, no more than five people. So it's very dark times and, of course, you might find yourself needing to talk to someone, talk to someone, which, of course, is very understandable. So just so you know, just to reiterate, it's no pressure, but um, you know, Lifeline is here 24 hours a day. It's a remarkable service. So if you ever feel like you need to uh, speak to someone during these coming days, weeks and months, their, their number is 13 11 14, 13 11 14. Or you can call Beyond Blue. They have a support line as well, and their number is 13 22 but we'll get on with tonight's show. Um, the virus will continue on and do its own thing. A lot of it will depend on us, but there are other perennial issues that uh, we need a, we need addressing as well. And of course, one of those issues is structural racism. A lot of us have heard the phrase, of course, but what is structural racism? Well, shortly I'll be joined on the line by Dr. Shireen Morris, constitutional lawyer, PhD and postdoctoral fellow with uh, Melbourne Law School. She should be able to tell us. What do you reckon? And in the second half of the show, I'll have a yarn with uh, Telfia Joseph, 
Talfia is an associate lecturer for the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Vaccination Program at the School of Public Health and Community Medicine in uh, New South Wales, University of New South Wales. She's going to tell us about some new research that has explored some of the reasons as to why flu vaccine uptake has been so low amongst Aboriginal people in New South Wales. But even though that research applies in New South Wales, undoubtedly it will apply to places like Victoria as well. So the best way you can get in touch with me during the show is via my Twitter handle, which is at Mr. DT James. This is the mission on 102.7 Triple R FM, your station in isolation and forevermore. Triple R. Now, to our first topic of discussion, structural racism. It's a term that is often bandied about, but what does it actually mean? In a time of Aboriginal Lives Matter and Black Lives Matter, it um, actually provides an important opportunity to talk about all forms of prejudice based on race, and structural racism being one such form. Now, recently in uh, Pursuit, uh, recently, um, Dr. Shireen Morris, Julia R. Murphy and Associate Professor Willett Partlett from the Melbourne Law School at the uh, University of Melbourne penned an article in which they argue that there is a solution to structural racism in this country, and it comes in the form of the Uluru Statement from the heart. So on the line now is one of the, one of the authors of that article, Dr Shireen Morris. Shireen is a McKenzie postdoctoral fellow at the Melbourne Law School, researching Indigenous constitutional recognition, particularly with respect to the design and development of a First Nations voice to Parliament, a Makarrata Commission, treaties, and an extra constitutional declaration of recognition. She is on the line with us now um, to pack on some to um, unpack some of these issues. Sheree, welcome to the mission. Hi, Daniel. Excellent to be with you. Thanks for for coming on and spending um, uh, some of your Tuesday evening with us. Um, yeah, no I've been. I've been asking this question recently of people coming on, and I'm only going to ask it um, of fellow Melbournians now. Um, how are you holding up in the midst of this pandemic? Oh, it's interesting. It's uh, it's good to share the house with my husband and and um, you know, be both working from home in our pajamas all day long. Um, <laughs> so I have to say, I'm one of those weird people who actually enjoys working from home, and um, yeah. I. I I get more work done, actually, you know, when you take travel time out of it. But I'm starting to get a bit over it now. So I was a bit disappointed um, to hear news about Victoria today. Um, I'm kind of getting ready for it to be over. Yeah, it's, um, it, was, it was just the blow we didn't need. But unfortunately, it's, it's, it has to, be, um, has to be done. We have to get on top of this thing if we've got to get Absolutely. to any sort of semblance Absolutely. of uh, normality. I just wish someone would find a, a vaccine tomorrow that works. <laughs> I know, I know. He's hoping. Okay, so let me let me just jump in the deep end here and ask you, um, what is structural racism? Yeah, it's an excellent question, and it's why um, my colleagues Julian and Will and I decided to write this article because we thought, you know, a lot of Australians probably don't understand what structural racism means, particularly in the Australian context. So, look, uh, structural racism is basically all about power. So it's about the power imbalances that are essentially embedded in institutions and systems and constitutions, um, especially where those institutions were founded in unjust and unequal circumstances, if that makes sense. Yeah, so, so basically uh, almost every institution in Australia. 
and and I think the most fundamental example of that, which the Uluru Standard speaks to, is the Australian Constitution. So, you know, the original document that created the Australian nation in 1901 was again, a document that's fundamentally all about power and how power is distributed in this country, that was set up, that was negotiated in unequal circumstances, in circumstances that basically denied the equality and existence of the Indigenous peoples who'd been here for thousands and thousands of years. So that's a fundamental example, I think, in Australia of this structural inequality, structural racism that we're talking about. And so that's, you know, we've had the Constitution and we've been a, uh, a federated nation since 1901, as, as, as you say. But in that time, it's, you know, th- that imbalance of power has been recognised for, for a long time. But since the, the introduction of the Federation and, and the, the, the Constitution, there has been very little or, or no reform when it comes to addressing that structural imbalance. Yeah, so, I mean... So there were discriminatory provisions in the Constitution of 1901. So there was a clause 127 said Indigenous people are not counted for the purposes of uh, counting the population. That was relating to voting. So we know that in lots of juris- couple of jurisdictions, uh, like Queensland, for example, Indigenous people didn't get the vote until really late. Um, but you're right. Um, there ha- has been minimal reform to the Australian Constitution. The most successful referendum for constitutional change was in 1967, yep. right, when 90% of the population voted to remove some of those explicit uh, exclusions of Indigenous people. So it removed that section 127 um, and it removed the exclusion of Indigenous people from the race power. But what it didn't do was address the underlying power imbalance. So there's still this power in the Constitution, the race power, which is a necessary power, gives the Commonwealth the power to make laws like the Native Act and that kind of thing. But the problem is nothing in the Constitution saying that Indigenous people must be treated equally, which is so the equivalent provision in the US Constitution is equal protection clause. We don't have that. We've still got racist provisions in there. And there's nothing in the Constitution saying that Indigenous people must have a voice or at least have a fair say when Parliament makes those laws and policies that are specifically about Indigenous people. So the structural inequality remains. So I think there was an assumption when the the Constitution was being uh, drafted that the, the, the Aborigine or the Aboriginal race would actually just die out, so there was actually no need to make any provisions for for Aboriginal people in in the constitution, and we're still feeling the structural permutations of that of that today, and and we see as you say in um, in your article, um, in places like the Senate, which guarantees mm. um, a relatively small state like Tasmania, um, twelve senators, but um, does there's there's no place at all for First Nations people who never ceded sovereignty on this place we now call Australia in the first place. Yeah, and I mean, that's why the Uluru Statement is such a congruent solution, right? It fits so well with the whole design of the Australian Constitution because the Constitutional Compact is all about recognising those pre-existing political communities, the former colonies, right, which became 
each of those pre-existing political communities got this equal voice in the Senate, like you say. So even a tiny state like Tasmania, and by the way, there's more Indigenous Australians than Tasmanians. Tasmanians are guaranteed 12 senators in our constitution. Yeah. So, you know, they're guaranteed a real equal voice. Um, but because of the discriminatory attitudes of the time, you know, the founders didn't view the Indigenous people as the original owners or as equal, so they weren't at the negotiating table. So they couldn't negotiate themselves a fair place, right? So, so when you look at what the Uluru Statement asks for, it, it's such a reasonable request because it's asking for basically a correction to that original omission, simply asking for a voice in Indigenous affairs, which I think is, is really sensible. So the Uluru, Uluru Statement was, was a gift from Aboriginal leadership from all across the country to the federal government, um, basically calling for, for, for a number of things. A voice to parliament, which has been misconstrued by people, including, disappointingly, by Malcolm Turnbull as a um, third chamber of parliament. It called for a Makarata commission to have um, some opportunity around uh, truth-telling in order to heal the wounds that um, uh, still permeate and, and line this land of ours. Um, and so, you know, there's been some criticism by some Indigenous leaders. I know Lydia Thorpe is a, is a, is a critic of the Uluru Statement um, in terms of the process that was used to get to it. My position is um, is that, um, OK, um, I'm not really aware of some of those issues that, that impacted on the, the, the representation at the, coming to the Uluru Statement. But my position is if you read those words outlined and written beautifully, one of the, I, I will think all go down as one of the, the, the most beautifully written uh, documents of the 21st century in terms of Australian history, um, it's pretty hard to, to disagree with. So how does the Uluru Statement and the voice to Parliament, as espoused in the statement, address structural um, racism? Yeah, that's an excellent question. Um, and by the way, just on the um, Lydia Thorpe point, so Lydia was one of the seven people who dissented uh, from the Uluru Statement, so one of the seven delegates, but 250 delegates minus seven is an astounding consensus. That's something like 97% consensus, which I think is amazing, you know. Um, you don't get that level of consensus um, elsewhere. But, look, I think, for example, the problem of incarceration, over incarceration, which is what is driving these protests, Indigenous people are only 3% of the population. They make up about 90, what is it, 29% um, of yeah. the Australian prison population, which is 30 percent of the thirty percent of the pop prison population. Yeah. Um eighty percent of the female population in, in places like New South Wales. Until recently, yeah. um, uh, every juvenile locked up in the Northern Territory was Aboriginal, and even in places like um, Victoria, I think something like seventy percent of those kids locked in youth detention are um, Aboriginal in the uh, so-called yeah, progressive state. It's it's appalling and we have, you know, just the efforts by the government, there's money put into Indigenous affairs, there's an Indigenous affairs department, there's a minister, but despite Australia's, and, and we can assume, let's assume that there's goodwill, right? There's pe people do want to close the gap. Yep. Us failing, so since the uh, Royal Commission into Deaths and Custody in 91, almost 30 years later, 
the incarceration rate has doubled. It's not going down, it's doubled. So we're comprehensively failing to address this policy. And look, it's a complicated issue. So I'm not saying there's a an easy solution. There are different drivers of this phenomena of incarceration, disadvantage, past discrimination, all sorts of things feeding into it, discrimination in the justice system. But the point is Indigenous people themselves, and this was a point made by the Royal Commission that hasn't been uh, acted upon by governments, Indigenous people themselves are best placed to figure out those nuanced, complicated solutions to this vexing policy problem and so many other policy problems that are meaning that Australia is failing to close the gap in Indigenous affairs. So uh, uh, that's that's the point, is that if we get um, Indigenous people, the First Nations communities that are experiencing these problems at the table in equal partnership with government, with parliament, designing those solutions, the policies and the laws that are intended to address Indigenous uh, disadvantage. That's how we're going to ultimately solve this and it problem. Means, so I think that's where the Uluru Statement provides, I think, the right structural solution. And it means if we have uh, Aboriginal people around the table in the first place, uh, we don't have to re- retrofit every program and institution from there on in. Um, it is 26 past seven here. You're listening to Triple R on 102.7 FM. Uh, I'm speaking with Dr. Shireen Morris, who's written, uh, co-authored a, um, an article in Pursuit, which uh, you can find at pursuit.unimalb.edu.au, on structural racism and how it can be remedied in this country through the Uluru Statement. Um, before I let you go, Shireen, um, we've seen a bit of a – well, we have seen a pause on the process to move towards a referendum, as announced by the uh, Minister for Indigenous Australians, Ken Wyatt. Uh, where do you think this leaves the whole momentum, the whole process towards um, – Getting some referendum, um, getting sorry recognition in the constitution, and eventually moving to some sort of embodiment that is the Uluru Statement. So my understanding is that the government committed to a co-design process um, to flesh out the details of what a First Nations voice might look like. I think it sounds to me like that process is delayed by the whole yeah. coronavirus thing, which is I think is understandable. Um, we look, Australians need to push for this or it's not going to happen. The legislative design of the institution is one thing, that work needs to be done. But um, the worrying thing is, I think, government's equivocation on whether or not a voice should be constitutionalised. I think it has to be in the constitution. For this to be serious constitutional reform, serious structural change, that is required for lasting change, it has to be guaranteed by the Constitution because we saw what happened with ATSIC, right? Yeah, it just becomes becomes another body that, uh, you know, advises government and can be dismantled through legislation. Exactly. So if we want real change, Australians need to put that pressure on government and and tell your lower MPs that we want this to happen and you can't keep delaying well, thank you so much for your time, Shireen. It's uh, been uh, a good discussion, uh, excellent article, and uh, keep up the good work that uh, you and others are doing at uh, Melbourne Law School. We need voices advocating for our mob in all places, and uh, Melbourne Law School is a great place to have people that are passionate about proving, improving the cause. So thank you for your time. Thanks so much, Daniel. 
This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. Okay, so we're on the homeward bound now, so uh, we need to speak to our second guest. Now, I bet you probably didn't know that hospitalisation rates for influenza are five times higher for the Aboriginal community than they are for the for the rest of Australians. And uh, that's particularly concerning in a time of COVID, and it's um, just as concerning in normal times, or the olden days, as they will soon be known. Uh, thankfully, a group of uh, University of New South Wales Medicine Public Health researchers set out to find out why, in particular, there were low take-up of vaccinations in, our, in the Aboriginal community. And one of those researchers is uh, Telfia Joseph. Telfia is a Wajari Yemichi woman and is an Associate Lecturer Program Lead for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Vaccination at the School of Public Health and Community Medicine at the University of New South Wales. And Telfia is on the line with us now. Telfia, welcome to Triple R. Hi, Daniel. Um, how are you? I'm, um, you're, see that question, <laughs> it means so many things on so many different levels for us Melbournians right now, <laughs> um, but I'm, I'm fine, I'm just fine, I'm just glad, uh, I'm glad to be talking to you actually. Oh, thanks, and um, we're really thankful and um, excited that you actually invited us onto the Mish so that we could actually have a conversation around this, so thank you for that. Yeah, no worries. I was um, I was saying um, at the top of the show that um, even though this is a, a New South Wales study, there are so many similarities between the New South Wales and Victorian Aboriginal populations that a lot of this research, um, I would imagine, would easily apply to the Victorian context. Um, without a doubt. Um, yeah. We have done um, studies in the past and it is a, a bit of a national problem. Yeah, absolutely. So... Um, um, yeah. Let's let's cut straight to the chase, right? So you and your team surveyed 273 Aboriginal people and you conducted a focus group with 13 Aboriginal immunisation healthcare workers to identify the main barriers in terms of going for a flu shot. What did you what did you identify as some of those factors? Well, we found that there was actually quite a lot of factors at play. So there was individuals in community who actually had the wrong ideas about flu. So some of those ideas that they thought that it wasn't really a big problem and that, <clears throat> excuse me, that they could actually um, do other kind of bush medicine to sort of help out with it. Mm-hmm. And they also weren't aware of their eligibility for, for free influenza. And... Yeah. Then, unfortunately, there was actually some people who, even if it was offered to them, they were saying that they might not actually take it, take it up. So there could be a lot of reasons about why that might happen. Mm-hmm. And then something that's quite worrying is um, there's a lot of doctors out there, a lot of general practice, who actually aren't identifying their First Nation people in their local community. So if they don't know who they're community is, they're not going to be able to offer the free vaccine for them. So that's a bit worrying as well. 
Yeah, it's um, it's it's been a perennial issue for for those who have worked in and around Aboriginal health uh, for as long as I can remember. Is you know making sure that when someone you know enrolls with a with a general practitioner or is uh, admitted to hospital, that they are asked the question on on that form: Are you an Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander? person and uh, we see time and time again unfortunately to this very day that um, uh, healthcare practitioners um, often make assumptions around um, someone's identity and so therefore don't ask the question. Yep very easy to happen yep you either get um, identified as another population group or not as Aboriginal at all so and if the environment doesn't make it comfortable for us to speak up and say, hey, I am Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander, that really um, contributes to the issue as well. Now, communication around the flu seems to have become more and more lax, but particularly, I think, um, communication targeted at the Aboriginal um, community in terms of the importance of having a flu shot, because your research found substantial portions of um, respondents believe that influenza is not a serious disease and that natural immunity or non-vaccine methods of protection were um, uh, better at avoiding infection. Uh, there, are, there are a number of dangerous assumptions to make, aren't they? They truly are. Um, unfortunately, um, the flu changes every year. So we don't have, we won't always have natural immunity from having a previous um, sort of infection. And if you're not getting the flu shot, then especially if you have like, um, say you've got diabetes and you've got asthma, that actually puts you into a category that um, can increase the chances of you actually catching the flu and then actually having it in, to such an extent that you might be hospitalised for it. Yeah, and, and as you note, um, in the paper we were hospitalised at five times the rate <clears throat> as the rest of the population. And that, um, yeah, that that's is just exactly right. unbelievable. And like I said, in a time of, of COVID-19, that's just, um, it's almost unthinkable the sort of the sort of travesties and, and devastation that the flu combined with COVID could actually wreak across some of our communities. It's exactly right. And, um, you know, community has been really great about preventing um, widespread infection of COVID. But one of the things that the community can really do as well is um, by actually getting your flu shot, that's going to sort of really help you stay out of hospitals and also keep you well so that you're not actually, if perchance you did um, catch COVID, 19 that you don't have a really bad experience with it exactly it's a um, scary so it, time so if you're out yeah. there mobbing you're listening to this go and get your flu shot please <laughs> yeah um, and so important. like we rely on it really is and we rely on our children to go and get their vaccines which also help protect um our grandparents and our elders and now it's time for us as adults to help protect um, ourselves and protect others around us by getting the flu shot as well. Absolutely. You, you spoke to a lot of people, 273, and you had a focus group with 30, 13 Aboriginal immunisation healthcare workers. Yeah. What, what were some of the main findings from the things that they told you that you found most confronting? Um, well, 
I think the fact that GPs aren't identifying um, their local population um, so that they can offer the flu, and this is often in areas where there's not an Aboriginal medical service, yeah. and that's worrying because that's something that we were looking at 10, 15 years ago, and we still haven't got the conversation across to the general practice. And and then also it was just um, the idea that um, people with high rates of chronic disease are not actually um, going about looking after themselves in the way that it could be important. And also... Aboriginal people, then we need to be empowered and we need to um, be comfortable about identifying so that we can have access to the correct health care that's available for us. Yeah, I think one of the one of but, the worrying um, anecdotal things that is coming through at the moment in terms of COVID is the number of people with uh, comorbidities or serious uh, diseases or, or health um, uh, impediments aren't going to general practitioners because they're they're afraid they'll be wasting GPs' time while they look after people that are potentially contracted uh, COVID, and so that actually doubles down on on, on the impact of COVID. Um, and it makes me it makes me very grateful that we have the Aboriginal community controlled health sector across Australia because I would hate to think the, the the proportion of Aboriginal people presenting to hospitals with the flu would be like without that sector. Well, that's really true. But um, without a doubt, the Aboriginal community controlled health sector they've they've done a stellar job in mm-hmm. um, protecting our community. They they have been doing. Um, um, triage, so they've been checking all patients before they come into the the, the health centre or they're actually treating them where they can outside of the health centre so they can keep everybody um, um, separated with the social distancing. Um, they've been having all their consultations on the telephone, getting their clients to, their patients to ring them or they're ringing their patients. And Initially, it was all about protecting everybody from COVID, uh, but now the focus is actually reminding people that they have to look after themselves and still maintain their um, existing health plans. And part of that existing health plan is getting your vaccines done and getting influenza done. And I, I know the story from New South Wales. I'm sure it's happened in other states and territories as well, where there's been a really strong push to get um, a lot of flu vaccine out to community controlled. Mm. And what's working beautifully at the moment is that um, Area Health has learnt that it's very effective and powerful if they actually work in collaboration and alongside the Aboriginal community control health sector. And they can actually then access far more people in the community and um, provide really good health clinics or um, flu vax clinics so that people can come in and get their immunisations without fear of um, sort of running into somebody else who might be sick with COVID, which um, luckily in Australia, our rates of COVID have been quite low. Speak for yourself. So, Um, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> um, I'm speaking with uh, Telfia Joseph, who is from the School of Public Health and Community Medicine, and we're talking about rates of uh, Aboriginal mob not getting their uh, their flu shot for for the for um for various reasons. So, 
Telfi, what what needs to be done next to get to get these rates up? Do you think? Um, communication. There needs to be a different way that we do the campaigns, and we have to be providing the information about why influenza is such a, a risk factor, and why in the Aboriginal community it needs to be picked up and um, utilised. So that's uh, I think the next thing that really needs to be done. So and I think I think the fortunate thing that, is that, that we've got the we've got the um, we've got the apparatus in place um, in terms of the Aboriginal Community Controlled Health Sector um, sector and um, Aboriginal medical services across the place, where the the apparatus is in place to really pump those messages through those organisations and get them out directly to the community. Yep. It's very true. It's very true. And, you know, I blame on the blokes. You've got to go roll your sleeve up and go get a needle. Yeah, bloody blokes. They're so annoying. Don't you find? Um, <laughs> um, well, <laughs> I have to Don't say it's not worse than the voice. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Telfia, thank you so much for your um, for your research. Keep, keep up the good fight and uh, look after yourself because New South Wales – He's not out of the woods either. Um, this can happen anywhere. Um, but um, thank you so much for your time and uh, uh, keep looking after your mob and we'll try to keep looking after ours down here. Thank you very much. And don't forget, wash your hands. Always wash your hands. Thank you, Telfia. Yep. Thank you so much, Daniel. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's The Mission a weekly radio show exploring the issues that impact the lives of Aboriginal people and those at the wrong end of social justice in this country. The mission is broadcast live on Triple R every Tuesday evening. Hope you've enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. <laughs>